Hi everyone, thanks for joining us again today. Right, uh, today I have a very special guest, uh, a friend, right, and just wanted to, uh, and someone who I really respect and very honored to have him with me. Uh, at the, just a little bit of background about him at the age of 17, my guest today foray into the technology sector for the, with his first venture, Vodian Internet Solutions. Under his leadership, the company grew to become Southeast Asia's largest web hosting provider with more than 150 employees across four countries serving more than 35,000 clients. In 2017, Vodian was acquired by Dreamscape Networks for $30 million, the largest transaction seen in Southeast Asia for a pure play hosting company without raising a single cent of venture capital. After the acquisition, he spent the next few years traveling the world, exploring new hobbies like snowboarding, kite surfing, and many more. He has also became an angel investor and has invested in companies like Chronicare, which is a company providing wound care solutions using artificial intelligence. We'll get into that in a little while. He also created a scholarship fund for his alma mater, mentored students, and spoke at various events about entrepreneurship and his journey. Currently, he is a mentor, coach, and advisor to many entrepreneurs in scaling up their businesses using his proprietary framework at superscaling.com and is also the chairman at cloudy.com private limited, taking care of clients' hosting needs so that you can go on the cloud easily, enjoy speed, simplicity, security, and stability. And with that, please allow me to welcome the one and only Alvin Pro. Okay, Alvin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Awesome to be here. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, you taking time off. Uh, right. Uh, hope you, I understand that you just came back from America. Hope, uh, hope that trip went really well for you. Right. Uh, how was that? Yeah. Thank, th thankfully, everything went well. Uh, right in the That's middle great. of the trip was when they announced that the Omicron uh, variant was 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 happening and. Uh, everybody was panicking, so that was a little bit of a scare. But thankfully, got back okay. Um, so yeah, happy to be here. Awesome, thank you. Thanks for joining us again. So just wanted to uh touch base a little bit. I understand that um at a tender age of seventeen, you actually started a business, um in cloud hosting, or rather in web hosting and 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 stuff like that, right? So maybe you want to just kind of like touch a little bit on that story a little bit more. Sure. I know whatever I introduce uh, doesn't do justice to that. So uh, yeah, 17 I, years. Yeah, it's a long paragraph. story, man. It, like even the start was something that I think uh, wasn't a straight path, right? It wasn't like I woke up one day and I thought to myself, hey, you know what? I'm going to start a hosting company. That was never mm -hmm. the case. Um, it was such a long long story though i i well i have to start in secondary school and this was when i was mm -hmm. like 15 years old right and wow. um at that point of time um one of the things that happened was that my family got um their first computer and this was wow. only because my father needed to do paperwork for his sales job right he needed to do mm -hmm. the proposals and the the i don't know what the forms you needed to do uh, all that i cared about as a kid back then at, at the age of 14 15 was that there was a computer at home um at first the computer was offline like no internet mm -hmm. at all you just booted it up and then you had software um this was 1996 i think software at that time was still offline you you you, you rarely needed an internet connection for it to work Versus like, you know, the all the cloud and SaaS software that's happening these days. Mm -hmm. um, so I was pretty happy without internet for a while. And then one day we got internet. And this isn't broadband. This is, I think, 26K? 20, 26K, I think. Yeah. Um, it's it's uh, 28K, sorry. 28K. And it was, it was basically just, uh, what was it called? Dial-up. With wow, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude, dude, it was like so. Every time we go online, there'll there'll be this like 
uh, weird noise that the modem will make and then yeah. you just have to cross your hands or at least I had to cross my hands because we only had one phone line at home, right? Mm-hmm. We couldn't afford another phone line. That means that if anybody were to pick up the phone when like someone's online, like if I'm online and somebody else picks up the phone in my house, that's it. I'll be disconnected. Wow. So uh, that was the state of affairs back then. But I remember one software that I absolutely loved and that was MIRC. Mm-hmm. MIRC was like the granddaddy of Slack. I, mm-hmm. I think that's the first version. In fact, I, I kind of feel like Slack looks a lot like MIRC with like the channels and the DMs and stuff. Yeah. Um, but as a kid back then, I, I absolutely loved it because my life was just two parts, right? The void deck in my home that I grew up with, like all the friends that I, I grew up with, they were all in my void deck and I'll be playing with them, you know, football, cycling and whatnot. And then I'll have my friends in the in school, right? And these are the friends that I will be like, um, you know, hanging out with at school or after school. But that's pretty much it. These two groups of people. With mm-hmm. MIRC, it just expanded my reach, right? Suddenly, I could be talking to people that were from other schools in Singapore, um, other age ranges in Singapore. And I think more, more importantly, uh, from countries outside of Singapore. So mm-hmm. that just blew my mind. And, you know, I, I, I loved it. Um, wow. It just made me feel like, um, you know, the world, like that phrase, the world is your oyster. That just made me feel... Mm-hmm like that. And uh, MIRC just, just captured my attention. So I actually learned scripting and programming and graphics design from MIRC. I see. Yeah. And, wow. and long, long story short, I think spending all that time on the computer just basically got me to be a web designer. And then from there, uh, web design was the first iteration of Vodian. And then Vodian mm-hmm. iterated or rather pivoted I think the word is pivoted to become a, a web hosting company. That's I how we see. got started. I see. Wow. So maybe since I understand that you are kind of like coaching people to scale companies, so just wanted to understand a little bit more of that journey of scaling Vodian from, I understand it was a two-man team to a 150-man team. And what were the challenges that you faced um, etc., and how, how you overcame them, etc.? It would be great. Oh, yeah, there were so many challenges. Like I remember one time when we were growing. Um, so this was, I think, about two uh, or three years into our growth already, and we were looking at ways to uh, really expand. And uh, we hired marketing agencies, and this this time this agency was supposed to help us with our SEO, you know, search engine. Right, and with this search uh-huh. engine optimization. Um, it basically allowed us to rank on search engines and, and it was literally Google at that time. Um, I'm not sure what's happening with the screen. It seems to be like, my, my, my screen seems to be jumping all over the place. Hey, Alvin, sorry. Uh, I think I had some issues with my internet earlier. Uh, how I wished um, I had those, uh, the kind of kind of service that Vodit uh, uh, was providing. Um, yeah, so, so sorry, apologies, you were saying? 
Uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> what were we talking about? So I think we were talking a little bit more about the Vod- the scaling up process of Vodian from a two-man team into a, uh, I think, a 150-man team and uh, ah. some the challenges that you faced um, as an entrepreneur as well right. as some challenges that you, you used to kind of like overcome those. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I think I was talking about the time when I was, uh, oh, the company was working on various like marketing agencies at that point in time, we were using this search engine optimization agency and, um, you know, we signed a contract with them. They seemed legit, but what happened after that was it turns out they were using less than legitimate, uh, less than legitimate means to allow us to rank on Google. Um, so things work well at the start and then suddenly everything went to hell. Everything wow. just fell apart. Google banned us. And as a tech company, we found ourselves um, not even able to be found on Google. And that, that, was, just, that was just insane. Um, so it took us a few months to get back. Wow. So that yeah. must have been a pretty harrowing experience, I suppose. Yeah, it was. So that really taught us the need to uh, diversify, diversify our channels, to understand what our sales channels are, to understand what our marketing channels are, and create them in a the form of like engines, right? That will work. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just having one, we're having like multiple of, of these engines so that you always have a constant source of leads and customers. Um, that, that was a valuable lesson that we learned. And you know, that's one of the things that I tell my clients also to always, always have like um, your sales engines, your marketing engines all detailed out um, and having multiple of them as well. Cool. So um, that was interesting. So understand that you were, so when you went to, from a two-man team, so a 150-man team, there's a huge difference in terms of handling people and the type of dynamics that we are looking at. Um, so what were some of the uh, methods that you ensured um, the efficiency and uh, effectiveness in terms of customer service, uh, in terms of your operations um, in your company while you scaled to that 150-man team? And what were the kind of like checkpoints that you used to make sure that um, things were running really smoothly. Yeah, so um, people tend to think that, or at least for me, that was the case. Um, people tend to think that it was always about, um, you know, the kind, the capabilities that you have, the, the knowledge that you have, and everything's about you, right? But um, as a business owner, one of the greatest mindset shifts that you can have is to really start to think of business as uh, something that leverages both your team and your systems. Uh, once you do that, you'll be able to start scaling. And it's literally changing the question from what can I do to what can we do? So um, in the first initial years of Vodian, I, I remember myself having like so many limiting beliefs that just held me back. You know, one of the beliefs that I had was like, I should do everything. You know, my family had this um, this work ethic instilled in me that, you know, you should always be hardworking and you should always, you know, have this like sense of responsibility and, and all that, which I still have. But I realized that it was just in a different context. The context is management and knowing how to delegate. So one of the things that, you know, I learned was that, right? delegation, making sure that you could manage a team um, and leveraging on the resources that you have as a business owner so that the business can grow bigger than who you are or what you are. Um, I think that was the, one of the biggest lessons that I learned that allowed us to scale. Wow. So um, that must have been a pretty interesting experience for you uh, after scaling up understand that you got acquired, your company got acquired for $30 million uh, by a ASX listed company called Dreamscape Networks. So congratulations on that, right? So um, what, what kind of made that um, connect? How did you guys get connected 
to your acquirers and uh, what made you decide to say, hey, it's time to let go, uh, time for the acquisition to happen so that they can potentially take volume to the next level. Cool. Let's do the first question first. Um, well, they found us actually. In that That's nice. time, 20, it was 2016, I think, or 2017. Um, actually, those years, I think it started from about 2014, 2015 onwards. Um, there was so much attention in Southeast Asia, especially in the hosting space. And that space was white, hot. Like all around the world, in Europe, in, in, in North America, in Australia, Japan, there was, there was a lot of attention already. But, you know, Southeast Asia was always left alone for some reason. And then um, in those years, attention started coming towards Southeast Asia. And we were the largest in Southeast Asia at that point of time. Um, and, you know, people were naturally like gravitating towards us. Um, every time, and this was pre-COVID, right? So every time, every quarter, there usually be an event, at least one event, like a conference or an exposition or, uh, uh, you know, whatever meeting that was having, that was, that was there. Um, and all these foreign people would come to Singapore for that meeting. And whenever they are there, they usually would just like line up meetings and they'll, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll come to us. They'll come to us. They'll, they'll say that they were in town and, you know, want to meet up, right? And almost always they would have um, uh, some hint of a, an M&A, right? Some are more indirect. Some are more, much more direct. Some are very straightforward about it. Uh, but they're mm -hmm. always, always hinting at the possibility of an M&A, right? And so for the people that are not very interested or not very serious, we, we just like maintain relationships with. Uh, but there were a few that we started talking to, uh, but there was nobody that, you know, we were absolutely serious with uh, until Dreamscape came along. The difference between Dreamscape and everybody else was that almost everybody else that came to us were either private equity or funds or uh, they, were, they were, were not the operators of the businesses. Some of them were very large hosting businesses in Europe, for example, but they were not operator-led already. It was a CEO that came in that wanted to expand the brand. Um, so it's very, very different until Dreamscape came along. Dreamscape is and was at a point of time still 100% founder-led. The person that was running the company was the founder and they grew it to be Australia's largest um, wow. hosting company. So when we, when we started talking, we realized that there were so many like parallels between our companies. You know, both of us were founder-led. We started from nothing. We grew the, the business from nothing as well. Um, and yeah, I remember there was one particularly uncanny like coincidence where we discovered that our offices in the Philippines were literally like beside each other. Wow. Um, not, not on the same floor, but like we were in buildings that were next to each other. So mm -hmm. that, was, that was super uncanny. I remember one day we just, I just I visited my office and then I just literally just crossed the street and, and visited them as well. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was that, that sense of you know, familiarity, I think, that, that made us comfortable with Dreamscape. And so we thought that it was possible that both of us get together uh, they were obviously mm -hmm. bigger because you know, just in times, just in terms of sheer size, if you are the biggest in Singapore, uh, just in terms of population, you know, yeah. not not still not very big. Um, mm -hmm. They were the biggest in Australia, and in terms of population, Australia is like four times the size of Singapore, and they mm -hmm. were also about four times the size of us. Um, so it had to be a a, a whole acquisition. And so our company, Volian, got acquired. And mm -hmm. we had the initial plans of expanding in Southeast Asia together while mm -hmm. retaining our brand, while retaining the Volian brand. Um, um, yeah, so that was the initial plan. And that's how the acquisition got started. I see. So, um, so what happened after the acquisition? Um, I understand that um, there were of course, some uh, cultural differences. 
Uh, yeah, there, there were. I, we stayed on for a year. So the acquisition happened mm-hmm. in 2017, then I stayed on for one year. We left in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, the initial plan didn't work out. I think there were some like uh, conflicting opinions on how to handle customer sure. service, how to handle expansion, expansion plans. Um, mm-hmm. So we decided to leave. Uh, my, my co-founder and I, we decided to leave. Um, mm-hmm. That happened in 2018. And after that, wow. I decided to sell everything I had um, finally having this, the time and space to myself to really travel the world full-time. Mm-hmm. And I did that for, for two years. So wow. that was a really, really good break. I see, I see. That's nice. Um, at least, at least I guess, you, you traveled pretty much at least 50% of the world, right? Kind of. Um, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not like one of those people that <laughs> has like a long chat list and, and just checks yeah. off things. Um, I, I, I think I travel slow. Uh, mm-hmm. In a sense that, you know, I, I take my time to visit like yeah. places and I spend like, you know, weeks at a certain place, just mm-hmm. taking my time, meeting local people, uh, absorbing the local culture, getting myself familiar with the place um, before I move on. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I did things like uh, a snowboarding course as well. Wow. So that took like two and a half months in New Zealand. That's nice. Um, yeah, surfing courses that took week a week. Um, kite surfing that took another week. I like like you know when all the weeks happen, you realize that you don't really have a lot of weeks in a year as as you mm-hmm. think as you you had thought. Like I I I thought fifty two weeks was a lot, but when you look at it from like you know you break it down and you look at it from like you know spending like four weeks here and spending like two weeks here and spending one week here and, and all that, it starts to add up. And suddenly one year mm-hmm. passed, two year passed. And before I knew it, um, it was time to come home. I see. Wow. That was really interesting. And any particular places that you really want to go since we were on that topic? Um, I, th- I think there are a lot of places that I enjoy and I appreciate. The two years, I think the greatest takeaway that I had was uh, that of introspection. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I learned the most was about myself. Um, When I was running my business, I I literally started, like you said, right? When I was 17 years old, at a point in time at 17 years old, all that I was going to do was like, you know, figure out how to, you know, have an income, how to have a career. And, you know, my whole life was 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 in business, I think. Um, so I never really had the, the time nor space to really ask myself very important questions. Very important questions such as, what are you going to do with the rest of your day? Uh, that was a question that I asked myself a lot when I was traveling. When you're traveling, mm-hmm. you're in a different place with no friends, or maybe your friends are in a different time zone, um, and you really have like so many hours to yourself, you start mm-hmm. asking yourself, hey man, what do you want to do and what do you like to do? So I learned a lot about my preferences, you know, what drives me, what I'm interested in, what I'm not interested in. And, um, you know, it was basically this like, this whole chapter on self-improvement that, that I went through. Um, so at the end of two, the two years, I learned so much about myself and, you know, my personality that, that it really like helped me understand how to move on to the next chapter, um, which is what I'm going through right now. Like with Superscaling and CLDY.com, I think that's something that uh, I didn't really have the, sure. the vision for back then in 2018. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so you had to be developed. Sure. So uh, maybe I think a typical, uh, a kind of like good transition to that, uh, since you mentioned it already, um, what made you decide to kind of come out and become like a coach for new entrepreneurs to kind of scale their businesses? And by the way, I see a book in your background and I assume that that was a book that you have really? written about scaling. Wow, that's nice. Um, yeah, so for our viewers, cool. I will post the, I'll post the link to Elvin's um, book in a bit, right? Uh, in the comment section. So feel free to visit his website and purchase some of those. I'm sure he, uh, I'm sure it will definitely help you in your business, right? So um, maybe 
Elvin, you want to share a little bit more about that and a little bit more about uh, what uh, what made you decide to to do this? Yeah, sure. Um, I would say it stems from I'd say two main things caused this um this realization. So one, when my acquisition happened, um, I I always receive a message from the school, from startups, from founders, um, typically mm-hmm. through LinkedIn or Facebook, asking mm-hmm. me to you know mentor them, give them advice, meet up with them, have a coffee, tell them my story, stuff like that, right? And mm-hmm. I always found it very hard to do so because whenever you have these meetings, um, typically what's going through that the other person's mind is that you know they're they're trying to look for this one key piece of knowledge, this this piece of information that's going to transform their lives and, you know, cause them to be successful in what they are doing. Kind of like um, the Holy Grail. Kind yeah, of the Holy Grail, right? But it doesn't work that way. If it works that way, then, you know, everybody that's on YouTube <laughs> or on like Reddit or in the library can mm-hmm. find the answers that they are looking for. Um, yep. But it typically doesn't work that way. So mm-hmm. I always found it very, very difficult to communicate with these people. Because mm-hmm. I, I couldn't help them. I couldn't help them effectively. Number one, I didn't know where they were coming from. Typically, the, mm-hmm. the, the conversations were like an hour-ish. Mm-hmm. I didn't know where they were coming from, what they've tried, what they didn't try. Um, so everything was all in a mess. And it was mm-hmm. very difficult for to have effective advice, to have effective wow. mentorship right, or mm-hmm. whatever it is that they were looking for. Um, so that was the first thing, right? Mm-hmm. And this this was a problem that I continually faced. So it was something that was like, annoying at me. And it was a problem mm-hmm. that I was like thinking about, wondering how best to solve. The second thing that happened was the fact that I took a snowboarding course, the snowboarding course that I mentioned just now, that was two and a half months long. Um, that course was gonna train and certify me as a snowboarding instructor wow what was interesting about that was the fact that you know i don't know about you but when i look at snowboarders they are not the most rigorous or structured or systematic person or people that you know i i think right um Mm -hmm. typically snowboarders are very laid back they look very chill they look you know um yeah i guess those are the two a little bit more relaxed right more relaxed like yeah so um imagine my surprise when i went through the course and Mm -hmm. i discovered that they actually had a really really structured way of uh teaching so Mm -hmm. very structured way of certifying someone and a very structured way of training up students as well so mm-hmm. when I went through it, I was, I was amazed and I was pretty shocked at it. Um, I've never actually learned how to be a teacher before. I've always, mm-hmm. I was always at the, the student end of things. So I've, mm-hmm. I was always you know, receiving instruction and not really like giving instruction. So to mm-hmm. go through this course actually showed me how uh, you know, structured you need to be as a, a coach, especially in a sport like snowboarding, because it's not just theory that you're teaching about, it's also about skills, like practical skills, right? And mm-hmm. so when you have a snowboarding instructor and a student, um, you've got to be prepared for all kinds of possibilities. The student could be a six-year-old, the student could be a 26-year-old, or the student could even be a 60-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. And depending on who you're instructing, like what you're saying, what you're doing, the way you're teaching has got to change and shift as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I went through the whole course, right? It was, it was, it was just an eye-opener for me. Um, one movement can be broken down into three different ways of teaching. Like, um, I remember they used a lot of the visual, the auditory, and the kinesthetic way of mm-hmm. instruction. Um, so you don't just show people how to do it. Like, you don't do a physical dem- You don't just do a physical demonstration. You layer it up with, like, being very uh, auditory about it, 
like walking people through the, the various sensations and feelings that you get mm-hmm. um, as you're performing the action. So you're talking about where your body is, where your shoulder is, what your head is looking at, um, the sensations in your boot and the feeling that you get in your, your board. Um, you know, all that is, is explained verbally. Um, and then also kinesthetically as well, where, you've, where you talk about like things that actually, like how things actually move. Um, so all these things um, was, was such an eye-opener to me. And I, I discovered that, you know, one of the greatest ways to communicate effectively is by using a framework uh, mm-hmm. or models. So once you have framework and models, it's so much easier uh, to communicate to people, to tell people what, what's on your mind and to get them to understand what they're trying to say. Wow. So it was a combination of these two things, right? Uh, all these people asking me for advice as well as me going through a, a snowboarding instructor course that made me realize that I could actually like combine the two and, and really be an entrepreneurship coach so that I could codify the knowledge that I had in my mind as an entrepreneur that went through like over two decades of entrepreneurship into a framework that people could understand and you know they could apply to their business and so they could get the results that you know I also got. And wow. that was the birth of super scaling. I see. I also understand that um, we uh, there. You also did some angel investing uh before that, and yeah, just wanted to. Uh, I mean, uh, just just for full disclaimer, uh, Elvin and I we sit on the same cap table of a company of a com- med tech company called Chronicare, which is why I kind of brought that up earlier in his introduction. So um. What made you start angel investing and uh eventually what when Chronic Care came, uh what was the uh reson uh thing factor for you to kind of like say, okay, I'm gonna back this, right? Because I understand that different angels have different ways of looking at uh, uh slicing up deals. Um, yeah. so just wanted to hear hear a little bit about that. And then also uh I understand that you have decided that angel investing wasn't your cup of tea maybe you just want to share a little bit why uh, on that as well kind of like why you decided that it wasn't your cup of tea yeah sure so um and that was i think when i went to do angel investing that was probably about 2018 as well mm-hmm. um and when i went through that it was basically in a phase of my life where i told myself that i wouldn't say no to anything um mm-hmm. you know i basically tried everything i i yeah. tried like you know, I, I went to learn plumbing. I did angel investing. I went to live with Mongolian nomads. I was like doing oh. all kinds of stuff. Um, so angel investing was one of them. The way I angel invest is basically to look at people, uh, to look mm-hmm. at the founding team, to look at the management team and to see how they are, what they are, what they're trying to achieve. Um, that's how oh. I look at companies. And... Um, Chronic Care was a great example because they had like such great people Ali and mm-hmm. Hussein I think were amazing um, very yep. very passionate about their space and had so much uh, domain expertise that I think it was like pretty much a no-brainer yep. uh, but angel investing in itself is a full-time job I've, I've, I come, I've come to realize that it's, it's not something that you can just like rock up and you know mm-hmm. just do occasionally um, yep. So for me, I, I, I don't really enjoy that. And that's why I, I realized I cannot I commit to that as a full-time job. I much rather, <laughs> you know, be the entrepreneur. And uh, that's why I started CLDY. You know, wow. again, that's why I'm doing super scaling right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoy the entrepreneurship part of things. I enjoy running a team. I enjoy making sure that the business is systematic. I enjoy like creating that kind of positive impact on the customers, on my team. Um, yeah, that, that is what drives me. I see. But uh, from my understanding, CLDY was uh, created by pretty much the same team that you had, right? Your, your key management guys that you had back in the, your Vodian days. And you kind of like say, hey, uh, about time we do something together again. And pretty much. I, they started a company and, you know, it was basically solving a problem that all of us saw 
in the space. The space was, hey, you know, who are you going to recommend? You know, if somebody asks you, uh, what hosting provider should I go to? Um, none of us could wholeheartedly recommend anybody. So it was the same problem that we saw. What's that? What about your previous company that you built and sold? Well, I, I can't recommend anybody. So that's why we started CLDY. Yeah. So, um, wow. So, yeah. understand that CLDY is now probably one of the fastest growing uh, cloud hosting providers, uh, at least in Singapore, if not in Southeast Asia. So, um, what's your vision for that? Man, we, it was, it's like uh, the vision that we had in Vodian, but like the version two of it, right? We mm -hmm. want to be a company that's global first. You know, Vodian was not global first. Vodian was pretty much just in Singapore and, and understandably so, right? Because infrastructure was all physical. We had our own servers. We had our own space in data centers in Singapore. And that really like constrained us. Um, for a while, the largest, one of the reasons that we went ahead with the M&A was also because of the lack of funds, uh, mainly because we didn't have that kind of capabilities to expand out of Singapore. So um, CLDY is cloud first. It's global mm -hmm. first, right? Um, yeah. There's no more physical constraints that hold us back. And we want to bring this mentality, not, not just to serve our customers, but to serve our team as well. Um, we don't want to just have a team in Singapore. Uh, again, back then, Vodian was something that we felt you know, was going to be Singapore first, but you know, it doesn't have to be. It can be you know, global first. People coming from all around the world, right? With just the same alignment in vision and values, um, I think that's sufficient. And um, so global first, the second is to be employee-led. Um, I think that's something that we didn't do as well in Vodian. Uh, Vodian was still pretty much started with my co-founder and I, and then we had management. But, you know, we wanted something this time around where everything was employee-led. Like, um, you know, it's not a democracy, but we want it to be something that uh, everybody has a voice in so that we know mm -hmm. that if our team is serving our employee, uh, our customers, that they are doing so in the best way that they think is possible, right? And I think that's absolutely necessary, not just for us, but for any business that needs to be, uh, that wants to be uh, customer-centric, right? It has to also come from the team. Um, so that's a form of, uh, I think, business leadership that I think is quite lacking as well. And, you know, I, I think CLDY um, has to do that um, as one of its core tenets. And then wow. the, the third is to be, of course, customer-centric. Uh, I think that's something that's one of the core, not just in CLDY, but also in everything that I'm coaching my, my entrepreneurship clients about mm -hmm. to have like customer-centricity as one of the core things that binds you and uh, what the company is doing. So um, I think these are the three things that drive us as a company at CLDY. And, you know, that's, that's what's, you know, driving us forward right now. You know, the things that we are doing, the things that we are investing in, the things that we are developing in terms of capabilities and values, they're all um, centered around these three points. Wow. That was, that was great. So, um, so, I was, so just to share with you a little bit more, uh, we also kind of discussed a little bit about your views on the future, right? Um, so do you see... Um, the tech, uh, what, where do you see um, your companies, uh, let's say, three years down the road, given the kind of speed of change uh, in technology? And uh, I kind of like to say this, um, accelerated cha accelerating change is the only constant. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on, on where you see your companies, uh, let's say, three to five years from now. Oh, big... <laughs> in terms nice. of impact, we want to scale more than what we were doing in Vodian, right? Again, because of the removal of all these constraints and, um, you know, having all the knowledge, the knowledge that 
of the lessons that we've made in the past, right? Now we're going to do something that's even bigger. Uh, what exactly are we going to do? I can't say. Even Facebook couldn't say when they, when they IPO'd. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one thing that definitely is something that is core to us is creating um, a platform in which our customers, which are businesses, can come online. The mm -hmm. main reason why CLDY exists is because customers such as SMEs and business, small businesses um, find it very difficult to go online, to go onto the cloud Primarily because it's, it's such a big technological gap. I mean, even right now when things are so advanced and everything is so like, you know, tech savvy, uh, we still have businesses that are unable to go on the cloud effectively. They'll still need either in-house talent or they still need to go through a third party, usually an agency. Um, and this process is very long and convoluted. Um, CLDY wants to breach that. We want to make sure that we are the one point of contact in which the customers that we serve can just come on board uh, and we handle all of that for them. We handle everything that they need to do on the cloud and they can just focus on their core business. So that's something that we want to do right now um, and we are doing in the first phase, which is the launch of all these infrastructure services, which is something that we have to still build out. Um, but, you know, in terms of what is going to happen three or five years later, um, I don't know yet. That's the honest truth. I don't know yet, but mm -hmm. you know, we are definitely knowing the direction that we're headed to. And I believe that as long as we build in this manner, um, we'll always be something that the customer requires and something that you know, we can be of service to, to the customers. Wow, that's great. Um, you know, not many entrepreneurs that I've seen personally have um, that kind of customer centricity in mind. So for the entrepreneurs out there, I just want to let you know that, you know, Customer centricity has helped Elvin build his business to where he is today, right? And I'm pretty sure that is one of the core values you need in your company in order to actually create a company of that kind of size, right? So that was great advice, Elvin. And um, I understand that recently there was a huge uh, hype about uh, the metaverse. Do you see Cloudy going into that anytime soon? Um, I am not in the metaverse or, or creating services around the metaverse yet. Although, uh, I did get the chance to play with an Oculus Rift, the, the latest version of the Oculus Rift, um, from Meta. And it was mm -hmm. mind blowing. Um, I definitely can see how businesses, how, how life can, mm -hmm. can evolve to that point. Um, it's almost like Second Life. It was a, mm -hmm. it's a game that you know I kind of grew up with. I didn't really play it, but you know it was around, and I know people who were playing it. And it's literally like a Second Life. You could mm -hmm. have a Second Life. You have a character or a set of characters. You know, you choose your character. You go in, and they lead they lead lives of their own. Right? These people in that world, have their own ecosystem, have their own culture, have their own society. Therefore, you could also buy land or a house and have a career. You could set up a shop, you know, a bakery or something, or even a company, you know, selling services. And you could do that in that world. Um, and I think with the metaverse, this is something that's going to be uh, increasingly going to be the case. Uh, there are a lot of things that push forward this narrative. COVID is one of it. The lockdowns and the quarantines and the removal of travel have pushed forward the narrative of the metaverse, actually, um, because, hey, this, this makes the Second Life concept much more appealing. Uh, we see sci-fi embracing it as well. Like, you know, Ready Player One was one of the more like mainstream movies that talked about a Second Life as well, a life in which you could escape your current situation into a, a, a virtual reality world where you could have, you know, a second life, you know, a life with everything. Um, so that's a very interesting space, I think. Um, again, not something that's on my focus right now because I think there's a lot of immediate priorities that need to be solved yep. first, but it's definitely something that I want to scale into uh, once it's there, right? Once, once things are... Uh, you know, you know, they're working and they're solid and they're accepted and they're embraced. 
uh, that's something that I'm totally into exploring. Wow. So on that point, um, the other thing that people have been talking about recently has been artificial intelligence. Uh, as you know, um, I'm probably a huge fan of um, pushing towards the singularity. Right, so for our viewers who don't understand what the singularity means, it is the point in which, in which artificial intelligence um, would sort of surpass human intelligence in most subjects. So um, what's your take on artificial intelligence? Do you think, uh, I mean, I've seen Elon Musk and some billionaires saying that this is going to destroy humanity, but I've also seen the other side of the story where they are saying that no, it's not going to destroy humanity. It's going to create sort of a utopia of sorts. Right? So what's your take on that? Um, I think it's too soon to say. I think one of the best cases or uh, the best ways to predict the future is actually be um, to be reading sci-fi. I think sci-fi actually uh, predicts a lot of the things that humans will do or will experience. Um, you know, uh, video calls long ago were, were talked about in sci-fi books, mm -hmm. um, electric vehicles, you know, they were all stuff that were talked about in sci-fi books. Robotics as well, yeah. yeah. Drones and stuff. They were all talked about. So it's, it's not concepts that are new, especially to sci-fi fans. Uh, but that's it. There are a lot of different scenarios that are painted in the sci-fi universe. One are, yeah, okay, okay these, these devices are great, but then there are also societal impacts. Um, 1984 is a book that is uh, quite telling also, mm -hmm. um, especially of a dystopian future. So mm -hmm. I honestly don't know and don't have a clue. Um, it really, really stems from like where the human race is going to. <laughs> um, and no matter what happens, right? It really is up to humans to, you know, make use of it. Uh, for example, guns, right? It's not that it's good or bad. Mm -hmm. It's really up to like the user that starts, that, that uses it, right? To, to you know, to, to cause it to be either a positive or negative uh, impact on the world. Right? If it's like a, a policeman who's using a firearm to prevent a crime from happening, I'd say that's a positive impact. But if it's a mass murderer, like, you know, doing a shootout at a school, I think that's a negative impact on the world. Uh, but we're still talking about the same guns, right? These are the guns that are, you know, invented and created. But who's to say mm -hmm. that it's a bad or good thing? So I, I think AI has that possibility as well, where it's a tool and how it's used is really left to the hands of the user. Wow. So um, I, I, I sort of agree with you in, on that point because a lot of times we, a lot of people keep saying, hey, uh, this thing is going to create a dystopian future. This thing, I mean, um, a lot of people say, oh, are we going to have a Terminator situation where AI and robots kind of combine together and create something really bad? But I guess it's at the end of the day up to us to kind of look into those uh, issues, right? And yeah. Uh, AI ethics. I think I think that's what a lot of uh, researchers are actually looking into as well. <laughs> Asimov and the Ten Laws. <laughs> yeah, I lo I love Isaac uh, Asimov. Uh, he's one of my favorite fiction uh, writers, by the way. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, I love it. I think sci-fi writers have like the imagination and the foresight to mm -hmm. really like predict things in the future. Um, one of the, one of the best like. Um, uh, investors I think come from like mm -hmm. sci-fi fans because they they kind of see what's possible right mm -hmm. and they kind of like actually you know experience it from the books and the movies that have been like created um, and so a the future isn't that unrealistic to them agreed um, you know what we do as uh, I mean, I run a venture capital firm, and uh, what we do is sometimes to kind of relax ourselves partially, to kind of um, also try to predict what's going to happen. Um, we actually we, we like to 
within my partnership, we kind of like to read sci-fi because uh, we're trying to say, okay, if this has been sort of imagined, people are going to do something about it at the end of the day, for, for better or worse, right? And what is the kind of impact that it's going to create uh, with people in general? So this is something that we are also looking into. So hopefully we can we can kind of have a uh, discussion on that either offline or on another episode as well. So and so just wanted to ask if you have any tips, right, for entrepreneurs that you would like to share, right, and kind of say, hey, uh, these are the things that um you can do to potentially reach to a 30 a 30 million dollar mark right because i'm pretty sure a lot of our listeners would be interested to hear that um wow this is literally like finding one tip from like my entire book i guess uh so just to give you an idea i think the book talks about five different principles uh starting from who you are as an entrepreneur to the, the businesses and the teams that you have i think my tip for somebody is to um question the limiting beliefs that you have um just like i mentioned there was there was so many beliefs that i held that i thought were right that were just holding me back and to really understand that requires a you know some self awareness some introspection some self reflection um and and figuring it, figuring out that i think would help you um scale because once again the things that really keep us back uh, sometimes the things that we have in our minds. Um, that's why of the five e-scale engine that I have in my book, the very first principle doesn't even cover the business itself. Mm-hmm. It talks about the entrepreneur. It talks about you know the, 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 the mindset that you have, the beliefs that you have, and how to actually create systems. And from there, that's how you start to scale the business. And then from there, we have the different principles that cover the business itself. Um, so that's my takeaway for everybody. Um, hopefully that gives you some room for thought. You know, questions that, question the beliefs, question why you're doing things and, and whether or not it's the best way for you and your business. Um, yeah, hopefully that helps. Well, thanks, Elvin. Uh, it kind of reminds me of what Peter Thiel always says, right? What is one truth that not many people agree with you on? It's kind of like trying to be a contrarian, but right. <laughs> Right, so um, I get uh, thanks for sharing that tip uh, on questioning your own limiting beliefs. Uh, and hopefully from that you are able to find something that um not is true, but not many people agree with you on. So with that, uh, Elvin, thank you once again uh for coming online with us uh at such short notice. Right, I really appreciate you uh sharing, and I apologize for the technical difficulty earlier. Right. Um, please take care. Please take care. Yeah. Right. Uh, um, looking forward to catching up with you really soon. Yeah. Right. Thanks for having me. So All right. Speak thank soon. you. See you yeah. soon. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye.